Thanks for taking time to watch this video message. Our mission here at Crosspoint is to relentlessly pursue those far from God with the hope and love of Jesus. And we pray that by watching, you experience both the hope and love he has to offer you. If you have questions or need more information on the ministries of our church, visit us online at crosspointcity.com. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. How are you guys this morning? Good, man. I'm glad that you guys are here. Fireworks couldn't keep you away, no matter how late they were. I love it. You guys are always the faithful. If you guys can open up your Bible or your YouVersion app to Matthew chapter 6, that's where we're going to be again this morning. We're in a series, if you haven't been here, called Best Sermon Ever, where we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon that Jesus himself delivered, that he spoke with his own mouth while he was here on this earth to a group of people as he's standing on the side of a mountain. And, And it's an incredible Thing. It's an incredible passage in scripture where we get to see directly in to the heart and the mind and the words of Jesus. And, and so for the past couple weeks specifically in this series, we've been in something that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And we've been talking about prayer. Now, this honestly is one of my favorite passages of scripture. One of the things that I love about God and I love about God's word is the fact that he doesn't want to hide himself from us. There are elements where he calls us to seek after him like treasure and to search and there are things that he hides from the surface so that we have to pursue him, but he doesn't want us not to know him. He wants us to know who he is and how much he loves us and what he expects from us. And this passage just puts that on display, at least to me it does. If you look in this passage, see a lot of us in the room would probably say that we struggle with either an understanding of prayer or a lot of us probably struggle with the practice of actually praying. And if you can go through the scriptures, you'll see all over where God, through men, talks about prayer and how to pray with thankfulness and without ceasing and and all things like that. But here in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, he stops in verse 9 and he says this, Pray then like this. If you want to know what and why and how, if you want to get the basic framework and the true heart of God on prayer, then we could stop at a place where God himself in the flesh, Jesus, says, pray then like this. And he wants us to stop and to look at what he's saying here to see what he desires for us to pray like and really also why. Why does he ask us to pray then like this? And so today we're going to be looking at a portion of the Lord's Prayer where he tells us to ask for things. God himself gives us what he wants us to ask for. Now, some of you in the room, you're really good at asking for things. There are some of you that that is your MO. When I said that God tells us to ask for things, you've got your notebook out and you're like, this is what I've been waiting for. And, and here's the thing. You know that about yourself or maybe you don't, but some of you know people like that. You're really good at saying things like, are you going to finish that? Can you help me? Can I borrow that? Are you planning on keeping that? Do you want that anymore? Those are people that are really good at asking for things. I know some people in my life, some family members and friends that are good. I'm thinking of a few, honestly, one in particular. I won't mention who they are because they might listen to this. But they're really good at asking for things. Like, almost to where they don't have to say words. They've kind of got this Jedi mind trick where they make you feel like it was your idea all along. You end up giving them something and they're like... Yeah, I guess I thought this was a good idea. They don't even have to ask anymore. That's how good they are. And some of you are laughing in the room because you can think of people like that. Some of you who aren't laughing or aren't thinking of somebody, it's probably you. And here's the thing. I know I make light of that, but God calls us as a community of believers to be able to ask for things. 
not only of God, but of each other. He calls us to be able to be vulnerable enough and to be honest enough that we have needs that sometimes need to be met and that God calls us as a community to help meet those needs. And so it is a good thing for us to ask. We're gonna see that today in this passage. Some of you in this room, though, fall on the other extreme. Some of you are extreme in being able to just ask all the time and others fall on the other side of the scale where you never ask for help. You never ask for anything. And it may be pride, it may be how you were raised, it may be fear of being vulnerable, whatever it is, you don't ask. You don't want people to know that you need help. You don't want people to know that you have vulnerabilities or weaknesses or needs. And so you would just much rather meet those things on your own. You'd much rather figure out that kind of stuff on your own. And as we look at this portion of the prayer this morning, we look where Jesus is telling us to ask for certain things. Those two extremes can make it really difficult for us to get the heart of God when he's telling us what to ask for here. But thankfully, like I said, we can look at this passage and why it's so sweet and why it's so powerful. It gives us the exact blueprint of what to ask for and why and and where to get our hearts when we ask. So Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read verses 11 through 13 together. They're on the screen Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now I want to make sure from the very beginning to say, when we talk about prayer this morning, nothing that I'm going to say, especially when we talk about the very first petition in this prayer, is a name it, claim it type prayer. Nothing is a prayer that if you were in a prosperity gospel culture where they're telling you, man, if you just think it and close your eyes and pray hard enough and back God into a corner saying, I want this, I need this, I know you have to provide it, that is not what we're talking about. Because really that kind of prayer, that kind of name it, claim it prayer where what I want, I get, what that does is it diminishes the God of the universe. It boils him down just to a genie or some kind of cosmic Santa Claus. And that is not who God is. Is See, these petitions that we pray, these things that we ask for, that we're going to look at, these things have a very specific purpose. And and here's the purpose. Last week, if we're going to be serious about praying prayers like this, then those are pretty radical commitments. The things that we prayed for last week and talked about praying, hollowing the name of God, living our entire life for the glory and the honor of the name of God, helping his kingdom, being a part of his plan to usher his kingdom in to this earth as it is in heaven. Those are huge, radical commitments. That is why God is asking us to ask for these things. When we pray those commitments, when we pray, God, hallowed be your name, I want my life to be about that. When we pray, God, I want to usher in, I want to be a part of your kingdom coming here on this earth, those are huge commitments. And what God knows, we cannot do that on our own. We have no ability in ourselves to really do any of those things. And so he's giving us permission and really telling us, ask me these things because you need them. But when you ask, what it's going to do is it's going to turn your attention to me, who is the only one that can provide those things. See, when we ask for daily bread, it's to sustain our physical bodies. When we ask for this forgiveness of sins, it's to bring peace to our soul. It's to bring us into right relationship with God. When we ask for being, to be led out of evil, it's our spirit being able to be free to willfully obey God. God desires to meet these needs. He, he, these aren't promises that we hold over God's head. These aren't promises that we hold over God's head to, to live a certain lifestyle. 
What they are is they're us turning our attention and they're, they're an expectance on God to meet our needs because we can't meet our own needs and we can't do the things he's asking us to commit to on our own. It's, it's believing that God desires to provide daily for our physical bodies, our souls, and our spirits. And if we believe that God is who he says he is, if we believe that the God of the Bible that we read about is really who he says he is, then we know this to be true, that the depths of his love for us is something that we'll never truly understand. We'll never fully be able to grasp just how much he loves us. And if that's the case, then we know that he loves us so much, he wants to bless us. He wants to give us good things. He wants to give us the good things that he has stored up for us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11 says, If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And see, this verse isn't about getting what we want. What it is is about God meeting our needs, and that is a very good thing. If we're evil and we're flawed and we can give our children good gifts, what it's saying is our God, our Father in heaven who is perfect and who loves us more than we could ever understand, he desires to meet our needs, and that's a very good thing. That is a good gift. I love in, in Ken Hempfield's book, The Prayer of Jesus, he says this. He says, one of God's main purposes in supplying our human needs is to enable us to fulfill the kingdom commitments that we made. See, here's the thing. If we pray and we ask with those commitments in mind, hallowing God's name, helping usher his kingdom in on this earth, if that's how we pray, if those are the commitments that we have in front of us, here's the thing. It takes us... From, it takes us from this place where we look at ourselves. It takes us from this place where we think about ourselves. And here's what it does. It allows us to look at God who is the giver and not the size and the specifics of the gifts he gives. It allows us just to focus in on God who is meeting our needs and not what he is doing or how much he is doing that we think he should or shouldn't be doing to actually meet our physical needs. And we're going to talk about this passage later in the series. I'm going to talk about it here in just a minute in our message. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32 and 33, he says, Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, God knows our needs. God knows that we have needs. God knows that we have physical needs. So if we can pray with a commitment and a focus towards what he's called us to, then he promises to meet those needs, which is incredibly freeing. If you really think about it, God's saying, if you'll just focus on my kingdom, I will take over the personal management of yours. If you will just be about mine, if you will just look to the things that are righteous, if you will just look to me and do the things that I'm calling you to, hollowing my name and ushering in my kingdom here on this earth, I will personally take over your kingdom here on this earth and manage it for you. I will personally make sure that it runs and that your needs are met. That is the God of the universe caring about just even the little details of our small little physical kingdom here on this earth. So as we look, let's look specifically at the three commitments, the three petitions that God asks us to pray, the three things he asks us to ask him for. Matthew chapter 6, verse 11 is where we'll start, and it says, Give us this day our daily bread. What this is, is it's just simply an acknowledgement that we have physical bodies that have needs that need to be met. We have physical bodies that need 
to be fed. We need water. We need shelter. God knows that we need jobs in order to work, to provide money, to pay for those things. God knows that our bodies are limited in what they can do and that they have physical capacities and there are certain things that need to be met in order for them to keep functioning. God knows that we have a physical body. So when we pray for the daily bread, what we're asking God for is, and we're acknowledging that he knows that we have a physical body and that we know that we have a physical body. But it's such a comfort to stop and think about the fact that God knows those needs, that God thinks about those needs, that God desires not only to think about them, but to meet those needs. Not long, like I said, after Jesus teaches about this prayer, further on in this chapter, what he does in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 33, and I'm just going to read it for us um, quickly, but he, he begins to kind of lay out why and what this is all about, this prayer for daily bread. Verse 25 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It is not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They need not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious saying, what we will eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, Jesus here in this passage, what he does, he not only gives us the confidence, but really the commandment not to worry. He doesn't want us to worry because when we worry, here's what happens. When we worry, we come to the God of the universe who we know wants to meet our needs and is fully powerful and capable of meeting our needs. And what it does, it causes us to come to him with prayers that are me-centered and me-focused and all about me. It causes us to come with these prayers. Worry brings us to this place, not of looking at the things that we need and asking for God to meet them. It begins to shift our attention to what we want. The things that we want that we think will make us at peace or satisfied or happy or fulfilled that is what those kind of prayers turn our attention to. And when we worry, we often lose sight of praying for God to meet our needs and we begin to be me-centered and me-focused to the point where we look at what we want. And that is not what God is asking us to do here. Daily bread is a prayer of provision for our just physical bodies to get the things that it needs to move on to the next day. James chapter four, verse three, it says, you ask and do not receive because you asked wrongly to spend it on your passions. That verse is an incredible check of our heart when we're praying to God. When there's a prayer that's going unanswered or we feel that it's going unanswered. There are times that God wants to give us things but the answer is just not yet. Just not yet. I don't have that for you yet. That's not what you need yet. But many times what we do is we pray for something over and over and we feel God's not answering and he is. James chapter four verse three says, no, you're praying wrongly. See, that thing that you need, that thing you keep asking for, you're about to spend it on yourself. You're about to make it about you and not about me, not about the hollowing of my name or the ushering in of my kingdom. 
See, when we ask these me-centered and me-focused prayers, something happens. Something happens in our heart. See, we begin to ask these things from God, and what they become is just merely decoration for our lives. They become things that we look at, we enjoy, we keep to ourselves, we find happiness in, we find peace in, we want more of because we think it's what truly satisfies. When we pray me-focused prayers, the things that God provides for us a lot of times just become decoration. But here's the thing, when we commit, when we look at what God calls us to first, there's an order to this prayer and there's a reason for that. When we make the radical commitments to hallow God's name and to usher in his kingdom here on this earth, to be a part of what he's doing, then what we pray for, our needs, they don't become me-focused anymore. They become kingdom-focused. And when they do that, the things that God provides us with, they stop becoming decoration and they start becoming equipment. They start becoming things that God gives us in order to meet his kingdom requirements to meet the things that he's calling us to. They become equipment that we use to meet the needs of others. They become things that we use to put on display to the world just how much God loves us, how much God desires to meet our needs and to provide for us. See, what it does, if we focus on those things, it allows us to get away from the drift of wanting to gain and accumulate all this stuff. And that's not inherently wrong. This isn't to say that savings accounts or retirement plans are a bad thing. The problem, though, with continuing to accumulate and gain so much is what happens is it can tend to turn us towards not praying for daily bread, not relying on God our Father for every day's needs. But what happens, especially where we live, we begin to just pray for annual bread. We begin to just go, God, that was another good year. Can I just have another one. We stop focusing on the fact that we need him every day, that the breath in our lungs, that everything that we need to get through a day comes from him. And we begin to just think that he kind of comes to us once a year or so and passes over and gives us just an annual bread to take care of us for a while so he can focus on other things. No, God says, if you'll be about my kingdom, I'm going to be about yours every day. I'm going to be about you every day. And providing what you need to do and to focus in on what I'm calling you to do. I love this prayer that's prayed in Proverbs chapter 30. And I'll say before I read it, it's a really hard prayer. I don't know that I've ever prayed like this or or don't even know if I'm at the place where I could. Proverbs 30 verse 8, it says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. That is, a, that is a heart that understands daily bread and the prayer for daily bread. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Just feed me with what is needful for me today. God, provide for me today what is needful. See, the children of Israel, they learned this lesson from God when they left captivity and were in the wilderness. God began to send something, bread from heaven. It was called manna. And every day the children of Israel to go out and to collect it. And they were to collect just enough to meet their needs for that day. They were to eat just enough for them to satisfy what they needed for the day. And the children of Israel struggled. A lot of times they would accumulate more and save some for the next day. And what they found out is it would be spoiled by the next morning. See, God was telling them, no, no, no. I want you to just worry about today because I will provide not only for today, but I'm the same God that's going to be there to tomorrow to provide for your daily needs. He wanted the nation of Israel to begin to depend on him. Because really, if you think about it, the nation of Israel was beginning to live one day away from starvation. If the bread didn't come, they didn't eat. And God was asking them, depend on me every day. Look to me to meet your needs. 
See, there's some things that happen when we pray this prayer. This prayer for daily bread, for God to meet our physical needs each and every day. First thing is that we're reminded that Jesus ultimately is the bread of life. When you look to John chapter 6, verse 35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, a lot of times what we begin to do with that verse is kind of talk about physical needs and we will be hungry and we will be thirsty as long as we live in this flesh. But what God is saying, your bigger hunger and your bigger thirst, the one that's more important, the one that hungers and thirsts for me, that is satisfied when you know me. That is satisfied when you rest in my son Jesus. That is satisfied when you enter into a relationship with my son and believe what he did for you on the cross was for you and believe that I am about you. That I'm ultimately about my name, but I want you to be a part of that. I want you to be a part of hallowing my name, making my name great. I am the bread of life. You won't hunger and you won't thirst if you look and are satisfied in me. The other thing is is it it turns our temptation away from just trusting in ourselves and our riches. Trusting in our ability to earn money, trusting in our family connections and our earning potential and our degrees and all of those things. It turns us away from just thinking that those are the only things that matter. God definitely provides those things for us to have our daily needs met. That's part of God's provision. But that is not the be-all, end-all. God does not want us to begin to give those things credit for his provision for us. God does not want us to begin to give a piece of paper on a wall or a bank account number the credit for providing us with what he ultimately provides. God turns our attention away from our riches and our potential and turns our focus when we commit to him towards him being the provider, him meeting our needs for daily bread. We also do this. We, we recognize that in this prayer, there's a personal pronoun, pronoun that is used, and it's not I, it's us. See, what God makes us realize is the excess that we have in our lives from day to day, he gives us that to meet the needs of others. Part of God's daily provision for his kingdom, for his sons and daughters, is you and I meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters. That is part of the way God has designed us and put us together. That is part of the way that God has blessed some of you with what seems like an excess so that you are free to give and to meet the needs of your brothers and sisters. And that is a part of God providing daily bread for his sons and daughters. It takes our attention off of just me and my kingdom and turns it towards the kingdom that God is desiring to build and expand. When we think about this, when we pray this simple petition, God, give us this day our daily bread, what it gives us to and leads us to is just the simple truth of God provides. God is the one who provides for our physical bodies, for our needs that we have. The second petition that we're going to look at, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, now the idea of debt, in all honesty, many of us feel the weight of that. There are many of us in the room that at some point or another, or maybe currently, you are feeling the effects of what financial debt brings on your life. The hours and hours that you work just to try and catch up or stay and keep your head above water. The sleepless nights that you have laid awake wondering how you're going to make it to the next day with all the weight and the pressure that that puts on you. But here's the question I want to ask you. When is the last time the debt that your sin causes kept you up all night? When is the last time when you were in sin 
that kept you up all night because you realized that is a debt that severs and breaks fellowship for a time with your relationship with God. See, that's what debt is, and that's what we look at. Our sin is serious. I think it's something that we tend to glance over, we tend to brush past really fast. God hates sin. God hates your sin. God hates my sin. Here's what I want us all to be aware of this morning because we can't be ignorant of this fact if we're really gonna understand this petition. If you want to know what God thinks about your sin, look at the cross. If you wanna know exactly how God feels about your specific sin in your life, look at the cross. Look at his beaten and bloodied son who is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is how God feels about your sin. God doesn't just shrug his shoulders. God doesn't just say, oh, they're kids. God he hates sin. It breaks fellowship with him. It causes a debt. It causes a wedge to be driven in our relationship with him. But here's the beautiful thing with that. God makes a way for us to have that debt paid. And it's easy. But, but Psalm 5.4, just to make sure we know, says that no evil can dwell with God. That is why it causes a wedge. That is why our sin is such a great debt. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. When we sin, we experience a break in our relationship. But like I said, God does not desire for that break of fellowship, that wedge to be driven any further. He makes it incredibly easy for us to have the debt's paid. Ultimately, he paid the debt once and for all with his son. When we think about the debt that our sin causes, the ultimate payment of that debt was when Jesus Christ himself hung on the cross for your sin and mine. That was the ultimate payment of that debt. But when we face daily the debt that our sin causes because we still live in this flesh and we still sin because we're still dwelling in this flesh, 1 John 1, 8 and 9 shows how incredibly easy God makes it for us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God makes it simple. If we confess, when we ask for forgiveness, when we confess, though, there's something about this, though, that we have to be clear on. This is not just a sweeping, I'm sorry, to kind of just cover everything. I really wish it was. I would have done so much better when I was growing up if that was the case. I'd have woke up in the morning, come down for breakfast, saw my mom and dad and been like, I'm sorry, good morning. Like, and that would have just covered the day. That would have covered the 150 to 250 things a day, depending on what day of the week it was, that I did to get myself in debt, in trouble. But that's not what God's talking about here. He's not talking about this sweeping, hey, I'm sorry. Man, when we confess our sin, God calls us to be specific to be real, to name the time, the place, the action, what happened, to be honest with him about our sin. That is true confession. See, here's something that I love. In the book that I was reading, um, Ken Hemphill, he talks about how anything less than full confession always brings less than full release. Anything less than full confession always brings less than full release. And here's what I'm saying. When we pray, man, it's specific. If I'm like, God, I'm sorry for lying, that's great. But if I'm like, God, I'm sorry for telling Zach Morgan I thought his shaved face looked good. I know I said that to his face, but I gotta confess, that was a lie. And, and I know I'm making light, but God, I am sorry 
that when I opened my phone, the first thing I did is went to a website where I lustfully looked at women. God, I am sorry yesterday that when my company gave me money to go take a client to lunch, I took the excess money and just put it in my pocket. Because not only are you confessing, what you're acknowledging is that I've done wrong and I need to make it right. But God, I can't without your forgiveness first. I can't do that unless I am fully released first from the guilt that I feel. Because our sin, which affects each other and people around us, that's not the greatest effect that it has. The greatest effect that our sin has is that wedge it drives into our relationship with God. And so he says, confess. And here's the thing. God already knows. When I was a kid and I would get in trouble and I would confess for part of my crime... And I would, I would confess for a little bit and they would, you know, I'd get the consequence or whatever. I'd feel like three seconds of relief. It'd be like, Phew. And I would remember the three other things that went along with that that I didn't confess and that I didn't know if they knew or not. And then I would instantly be all under that guilt again and the shame and are they going to find out and how do I hide it? And man, if we will just fully confess, because here's the thing, nine times out of ten, they already knew. My parents already knew everything that I had done. They were just waiting for me to be honest about it. God already knows exactly what you've done and when you did it and who you sinned against and why and he knew your heart attitude and he, he already knows. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to come to God quivering in fear. God already knows what our sin has done. He just wants us to confess because that kind of confession truly brings us to a place where we can repent, which repentance isn't just, I'm sorry, I'm gonna continue. Repentance is, I'm sorry, I'm going the other way now. But that kind of confession needs to come before we can truly feel the freedom from our debt. The freedom that God offers, the true freedom, the restoration of our brokenness, it's a good thing, but it needs that confession. And here's the other thing that we have to think about. When we are in debt to sin like that, it is wasting precious and valuable time that we could be doing the things we committed to before. It is wasting valuable time of us hallowing and honoring and glorifying God's name. It's wasting valuable time of us expanding his kingdom here on earth because that's the wedge that sin drives. But then it's incredible when we experience the freedom that God offers when he says, if you will confess, I am faithful and just to forgive your sins. Why? Not because your confession was good, not because he feels like, yeah, I guess he's really sorry, because you were acknowledging the fact that what Jesus did on the cross for you was enough. That when Jesus paid the price, it was enough, and you were just resting in that. See, here's the thing. The second part of that verse, as we continue into it, it says, as we have forgiven our debtors. A lot of people have trouble with that. A lot of people don't like the second part of that verse because it seems like a condition. Wait, 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 God says his love is free and his grace is free and his forgiveness is free. That sounds like a condition. See, here's the thing about that. That is not, when I was praying about it, reading through this, what God kind of brought to my mind, that's not like a condition, like a contract. That's not like a you sign here and you're agreeing to this. That's more of like a condition, like a diagnosis. And it's a diagnosis of a heart problem. If you are unwilling to forgive others, then you are not truly experiencing the freedom and the forgiveness God gives you. You are not truly understanding what it means when God says, I forgive you. That is a condition. We cannot experience God's forgiveness. And we have not truly experienced God's forgiveness if we are not then excited and eager to turn around and to share that same forgiveness with others who have wronged us. And I know some of you are sitting in this room and you're going, but Devin, you don't understand. 
you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how much it hurt me. You don't know how embarrassed I was. You don't know how long it caused me not to talk to this person or that person. You don't know how much it cost me when they did that. And see, here's the thing. A lot of us think, if I forgive them, I'm going to look like a fool. If I forgive them, I'm going to be miserable because they got off the hook. They've never said sorry. They've never asked me to forgive them. They've never paid it back. If I forgive them, I'm going to be miserable because they got off the hook. Here's what you have to understand. When you act like that, when you withhold forgiveness from someone else because of those feelings, what you are truly saying is, God, you are a fool for forgiving me. God, you must be miserable in heaven. God must be standing in heaven going, I can't believe I forgave that guy. I can't believe my son shed his blood for her. That's what you're saying to God. You're saying, you're the fool. You must be miserable. And I can assure you that that is not the case at all. That God does not one second feel foolish for what he forgave you of. God for one second is not miserable because he chose to forgive sinful people like you and I. If we are going to experience God's forgiveness, then the condition is, and it's not a contract condition, it's a heart condition. If we truly experience it, then it is us understanding and being willing to share that with somebody else. The Bible illustrates this really well in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus explains this story where a king or a master, he decides to collect debts from people. He wants to get his accounts in order. So he comes to a man who owes him about a year's wage, an incredible, huge debt. He comes to the man, the man doesn't have the money, obviously, to pay it. And he says, okay, I'm going to sell you and all your family into slavery and all your stuff to settle, settle this debt. And the man pleads, he falls on his knees. The Bible says he begs for the mercy of the king, not, not to forgive him his debt, just to give him time to come up with the money. And the king, in his grace, decides, and in his mercy, he goes, no, okay, I'll just forgive your debt. You're absolutely forgiven. So the Bible says this man, this servant, then leaves, and he runs across somebody who owes him about a day's wage. And he asks for it, and the guy says, I don't have it, and he gets incensed. And he says, please, please forgive me. I'll get the money. And the guy says, no. It says he chokes him, he holds him to the ground, and then he throws him in jail. And the master finds out about it through other servants. And the master comes to that man, and he says, now you're... And he casts him in jail and he does what he originally was going to do because that man, the first man, he did not understand the debt that was forgiven. He didn't truly understand what forgiveness he had experienced and what freedom he had been given from the, from the master. Because it was evident. He went and, and the condition of his heart, he wasn't able to forgive others who had sinned and who had a debt to him. Man, that is a heart check. If you're truly experiencing God's forgiveness in your life, then it is not even a question that you extend that same forgiveness to those around you. And we can be debt-free because we have a loving Father in heaven who promises to be faithful to forgive us if we will just confess, if we will just come clean. And not only that, when we experience the weight of that forgiveness, to extend that to everyone who is around us. So when we pray that prayer, what we can rest in the simple fact is that God forgives. We serve a God in heaven who forgives. Now let's look at the final um, petition together. Matthew 6, 13, it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now the final petition, it's one that we make proactively. 
It's one that we make with an understanding that we will be faced and we are faced every day with a real enemy. And this real enemy desires to do things in our lives that ultimately steal and kill and destroy. That is his purpose. That is what he desires to do for us. But first of all, we need to to know that when we make this petition, that we acknowledge our sin is our fault. When we sin, it is not God's fault. God does not tempt us. And when we sin in temptation, when we fall to temptation, that's not God's bad. That's ours. James 1, 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. See, we are ourselves enticed by temptation, and we ourselves choose sin over God's goodness and grace and the things he calls us to. We fall when we sin. It is not anything of God's doing, and that's one of the biggest acknowledgments we make when we pray this prayer. But secondly, it brings us to this place where we understand we cannot fight evil on our own. We cannot fight this real enemy, the, the Satan and, and all of his desires and all of his traps and all the things that he lays down for us. We do not have the ability on our own to fight against those things. We do not have enough white-knuckle willpower to just get through the temptations and the things that he lays out for us each and every day. So what it is is this prayer is us acknowledging, God, we need you. God, I need you to deliver me from evil. But not just deliver me, to lead me from evil. It's a prayer that acknowledges, God, the things you know that are my weakness, the things you know where the enemy is laying temptations, lead me from them. Keep me away. It would be like back in the day when my, in, in the, some of the wars, World War II, where they had laid mines all over the field. Somebody went out ahead and swept ahead and tried to keep troops from going anywhere near those traps, anywhere near those snares. God, we're asking you, please go before me and keep me away from those temptations. In Matthew 26, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. And he asked his disciples because he's told them now what's going to happen. And the response he's gotten from Peter especially is, he tells Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, absolutely not. I would never do that. And so they're up with Jesus and he's about to pray. And he says, listen, pray with me because the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Here's the thing. You and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ in this room this morning, you don't, because of your new heart, because you're a new creation, you don't wake up with this desire just to sin against God in the morning. You don't wake up with just this desire to go, God, I don't care what you have to say today. I'm doing my own thing. If you truly are reborn and you are a new creation, that is not the desire of your heart, but our flesh exists and it is weak. Our flesh exists can pull at us. Our flesh is the thing that draws us and lures us towards temptation. But here's the beautiful promise when we pray. Here's the promise that we're acknowledging when we pray this prayer to God. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he is also able to provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How incredible is that to think about? God knew the measure of every temptation. Do you know how many times you're tempted a day? Just you, yourself, in one day, even in an hour, it's astronomical at times. God has measured out every one of those for each of us and knows that none of them exceed our ability in him 
to be, in, to be able to endure it, to be able to overcome it. And he says, I will provide a way of escape. Every one of those, you will have the ability because of my love, my grace towards you to endure that temptation. God knows what we'll face. So when we pray this petition, and what we're doing is we're just acknowledging and reminding ourselves that's the God we serve. That's the God we're praying to. We are praying, or we are praying to a God that 1 John 4, 4 says is greater than the enemy that's in the world. Greater is he than in us than he who is in the world. We serve a God who measures out and knows the temptation we will face and is fully capable of delivering us for us. And so we rest in the fact that God leads. God leads. We rest in the fact that God provides, God forgives, and God leads. When we ask these things, when we pray these prayers, when we ask God to meet our needs physically and spiritually and deep in our soul, what we are acknowledging is, God, we need you. If we're going to be about hallowing your name, glorifying your name here on this earth, if we are going to be about helping bring your kingdom, ushering in, joining you as you desire for your kingdom to come on this earth as it is in heaven, then we need God to do these things. And so when we pray, when you guys pray, pray them like this. When you go to ask God things, keep them in light of the commitments you're making. Keep them in light of who is the giver, not just the things that he gives. Keep them in light of the fact that you serve a God who will forgive you and measure out to you forgiveness, that we are totally undeserving them. And then keep them in light of the fact that we serve a God who has measured out all the temptation we'll face and knows beyond a shadow of a doubt he's given us what we need to be able to endure those things. That's the God we serve. You guys can bow your heads. God, I thank you, Father, that you love us like that. God, I thank you that when we come to you and when we ask these things in your name, God, it is evident and it is clear, God, that you desire for us, God, to know you, to follow you, God. It is evident and clear that the commitments we make, that ultimately our lives are not our own. Ultimately, our lives are not about us. Ultimately, our lives, God, are not about bringing us glory or you being about us. God, ultimately, our lives are about glorifying your name. God, and when we commit to glorifying your name, when we commit to looking at this world around us and desiring to see your kingdom come here on this earth, God, we will need so much to be able to pull that off. God, we are weak in our flesh. We're weak even on our best day. So I pray that as we pray for our daily needs, the things that you're trying to give us, God, that you want to give us, God, I pray that we would look to you as the provider. God, we love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.